0: Hello, my name is David Fincher and I want to welcome you to Divine Deliberations. We appreciate so much you being here today. Our topic is of most importance. The question is, what must I do to be saved? We are on part two of this question, answering this question. What is the Bible answer to this question? Because it really doesn't matter what men say. We don't care. We don't care what any church says. We don't care what any denomination says. We don't care about creeds and the doctrines and the commandments of men. All we wanna know is what does the scripture say? Because there's plenty of people out there today that are teaching false doctrines, plans of salvation that you cannot find within the pages of scripture, and we need to preach and teach and know the truth. So that's what we're gonna talk about today. What must I do to be saved? Part two, is baptism necessary for salvation? Let me remind you to click the subscribe button and the like button and the little bell button, all right? We need to get people tuning into this. Share the video on your Facebook page, your YouTube channel. But we need to get people knowing the truth. Thanks for tuning in. Make sure you hit subscribe. Make sure you hit the like and make sure you hit the little bell. All right, here we go. Acts 16 is the story about the Philippian jailer. Paul and Silas had come to Philippi. They were immediately labeled as troublemakers. They were beaten with rods, most likely, thrown into prison, and the jailer was charged to keep them there to make sure they did not get away. Around midnight, Paul and Silas were singing praises to God Which has always sort of got me, you know, like I might be singing gloom, despair and agony on me. And these guys are singing praises to God. And everybody was listening to them and there was an earthquake and all the doors were open. And the jailer woke up and thought everyone had run. And he drew his sword out because basically he was going to end up being killed for all the prisoners escaping. But he drew his sword and would have killed himself. And Paul said, do yourself no harm. We are all here. He came in, brought them out, and asked this question, sirs, what must I do to be saved? In Acts 16 and verse 31, Paul and Silas answered the question. And they said to him, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved in thine house. Though that passage is used by many denominations as exhaustive, I hope in the last video we proved that it is not. Because that same Paul, years later, would write the church at Rome. In Romans 10 and verse 9, he said, If thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Now, Paul would later actually tell the church at Rome that not only do they need to believe in their heart, they also need to confess with their mouth the Lord Jesus. So we need to understand that that passage, that passage in Romans lists confession in addition to belief same person the Apostle Paul the same guy that told the Philippian jailer to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved in thine house that same person would later write that not only do you need to believe you need to confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus Christ now when it comes to Romans 10 and verse 9 we also need to keep in mind that that passage is not exhaustive it doesn't mention repentance A key theological concept in understanding hermeneutics is no one passage contains the exhaustive will of God on any Bible subject. The command to believe is first because without belief, repentance isn't going to happen, confession isn't going to happen, nothing's going to happen. If no one believes, nothing's going to happen. So the answer to the question involved more. The statement, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved, is not everything that was told to the Philippian jailer. If you read the next verse, in verse 32, well, let's go ahead and read verses 30 through 32. He brought them out and said, "'Sirs, what must I do to be saved?' And they said, "'Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, "'and thou shalt be saved, and thine house.' And they spake unto him the word of the Lord, and to all that were in his house." Now, there's no doubt in my mind that Paul told the Philippian jailer about the death, barrel and resurrection of Jesus. But not just that is no doubt in my mind that he told the Philippian jailer that he needed to repent. You say, how do you know that? Because in Acts 17 and verse 30, that same Paul would tell the Athenians on Mars Hill, but God in times past overlooked a lot of ignorance, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. Jesus would say in Luke the 13th chapter and verse three and verse five, except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. Now he's talking to Jewish people, people who are in covenant with God and demanding from them repentance and making repentance a condition of salvation. If you do not repent, except you repent, you will all likewise perish. Perish means not being saved. Having everlasting life means being saved. So Jesus is using the negative side to prove that repentance is part of Of salvation. Except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. You will not be saved. The text indicates that he did repent. In Acts 16 and verse 33, it says he took them that same hour of the night and washed their stripes. He may have been the very one to beat them with those rods. Surely they told him to confess. We've already mentioned Romans 10 and verse 9. If you shall confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shall believe in your heart God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Surely he told them then to be baptized." You say, how do you know that? Because verse 33 says he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes and was baptized he and all his straightway. Let me ask you a question. If baptism isn't important, then why take them and do it at one or two or three o'clock in the morning? Because that's about probably what time it was. It was around midnight when they were singing and all the doors were opened. And the whole, what must I do to be saved question arose. And they spake unto him the word of the Lord. I'm guessing that took a little bit of time. So somewhere around one or two or maybe three in the morning, those individuals went down to a river or a Creek or somewhere where there was enough water to be immersed because baptism is immersion. And I'll touch on that a little bit here, but probably more in another video. But he took them the same hour of the night, washed their stripes, and was baptized he and all his in the middle of the night. Now, if baptism isn't important, why in the world do it? Some people say it's an outward sign of an inward faith. Well, who was it being shown to? Paul and Silas? Did they have a crowd at one or two o'clock in the morning? There was just the jailer, his family, Paul, and Silas, from what I can see in Scripture. So who were they demonstrating their inward faith to by being baptized, which was supposed to be an outward sign? First, you can't find that in Scripture anywhere. Nowhere in Scripture does it say baptism is an outward sign of an inward faith. People come up with that just to do something with it because they don't want to deal with the topic of baptism. Then second, baptism is put forward as being part of the plan of salvation. Some people say baptism is work, and therefore, we're not saved by works. They run to Ephesians, the second chapter, verse eight and verse nine, thinking that that passage actually denounces baptism. It does not. But that passage says, "'For by grace you're saved through faith, "'and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, "'not of works, lest any man should boast.'" Let me point out a few things to you. First, baptism is not mentioned in Ephesians the second chapter, verse 8 and verse 9. Second, repentance is not mentioned in Ephesians the second chapter, verse 8 and verse 9. And third, confession is not mentioned in Ephesians the second chapter, verse 8 and verse 9. We need to understand something. If God commanded it and God ordained it, then it is a work, but it is not a work of men. It is a work of God. We need to get that. And you say, how do you prove it? John, the sixth chapter, verse 28 and verse 29. Then they said unto him, What shall we do that we might work the works of God? Jesus answered and said unto them, This is the work of God, that you believe on him whom he hath sent. Belief in Christ is a work. Jesus defined those terms. He said, This is the work of God, that you believe on him whom he hath sent. We need to get this, that when God commands something and when God ordains something, that something, whether it be belief or whether it be repentance or whether it be confession or whether it be baptism, that thing that God commanded, that thing that God ordained is a work, but it is a work of God, not a work of man. And that's important. Because we're not saved by our works, we're not saved by the keeping of the law or any such thing, or all the good that we do, the the very good things that we do according to the Bible are as filthy rags before the Lord. They can never measure up, they can never reach his level of goodness and holiness. Is it possible that the works that Paul was talking about in Ephesians second chapter verse eight and verse nine were works of the law? Well, I believe it is, because if you read Galatians the second chapter and verse sixteen, He says there, knowing that a man is not justified by works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Jesus Christ that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Doesn't that sound a lot like Ephesians, the second chapter? You see, baptism is a work, but it is a work of God. Why? Because God ordained it, God instituted it, and God commanded it. Baptism is a response to God. Peter actually said it is an appeal to God. In 1 Peter 3 and verse 20 and 21, he said, Even as Noah and his family, wherein few, that is, eight souls, were saved by water, the like figure wherein too even baptism doth also now save us. Not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The English Standard Version and the New American Standard Version, which are the most literal translations available in English today, say it like this, Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The easy-to-read version says, And that water is like baptism, which now saves you. Baptism is not washing of dirt from the body it is asking God for a clean conscience it saves you because Jesus Christ was raised from the dead baptism is our appealing to God for a clear conscience let me ask you this if you refuse to be baptized because you don't want to or for whatever reason can you possibly have a clean conscience in disobeying a command of God some object to baptism and call it a work because it's something that we have to do Well, that sword cuts in both directions. Everything that we do is something that we have to do. Repentance is something that we have to do. Confession is something that we have to do. Belief is something that we have to do. Even after baptism and becoming a Christian, there are still many some things that we have to do. According to Hebrews 10 and verse 26, we're to attend services, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. According to Matthew 25, we should feed the hungry, clothe the naked, visit the sick, the widows, and the orphan in their afflictions. also recorded in James. We're supposed to love one another, John 13. We're supposed to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, Matthew 12 and verse 30. We're supposed to be faithful unto death, and he'll give us a crown of life, Revelation 2 and verse 10. The issue of Ephesians 2 verse 8 and 9 is the issue of Merit. And pride, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. It's an attitude of merit and pride that Paul's addressing there. I deserve to be saved because of what I've done. Paul's saying, no way. It doesn't happen that way. Ephesians 2, verse 8 and verse 9 is not about omission of baptism from the plan of salvation, no more than it's about omission of repentance or confession from the plan of salvation. It's about works of merit and works of pride. Luke 17 and verse 10, Jesus said, So likewise ye, when you have done all things whatsoever commanded you, say, We are unprofitable servants. We have done that which was our duty to do. Baptism is a work, but it's a work of God, just like faith is a work. A work of God. Out of the mouth of Jesus himself, John 6 and verse 29, this is the work of God, that you believe on him whom he hath sent. Why? God commanded it. God ordained it. God instituted it. Repentance is a work of God. Acts 11 and verse 18, When they heard these things, they held their peace and glorified God, saying, Then hath God also to the Gentiles granted repentance unto life. 2 Timothy 2, 24 through 26 and the servant of the Lord must not strive but be gentle unto all men, apt to teach, patient, in meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves. If God preadventure will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth, they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil who are taken captive by him at his will. Why is repentance a work of God? Because God commanded it, God ordained it, and God instituted it. Baptism's the same way. It's a work, but it's a work of God. Colossians 2 and verse 12 says, we are buried with him in baptism. There's the immersion I was speaking about. We are buried with him in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God, who hath raised him from the dead. The Greek word operation or working is energia. It means efficiency, energy, operation, strong, effectual working. Baptism is a work of God. And we need to understand that. It's not a work of man. It's not something that we can take merit in or say to God, you owe me because I was baptized. That's not the case. It never will be. Baptism is required. Someone's gonna say, what about the soldier in the foxhole who can't be baptized? What about the mother or the father or the brother or the sister who was not baptized and passed away? What about the husband and wife who died but never went to church. What about the young boy or girl of 16 who dies in a car wreck? If God makes exceptions for those individuals and they weren't baptized, that's his prerogative. He can do so. We have to adhere to the commands of the New Testament. If God chooses to make exceptions to those commands, that's his business and he has the right to do so. Yet we are bound by the scriptures themselves. Note that exceptions are just that. They are exceptions. And I'll also ask you the question, what about the soldier in the foxhole? who's out there in the battlefield and gets scared because he thinks he's gonna die. But he can't be baptized and sure enough he does die. Let me ask you a question. How many times did he have opportunity before the foxhole and before that battle to hear the word of God and to obey the word of God but rejected it? What about the mother or the father or the brother or sister who was not baptized because they didn't want to be? They didn't want to submit to the will or the word of God walked away from it. What about the husband or the wife who died never having gone to church? Was there there no churches available? Had they nowhere they could go? Or the young boy or the young girl of 16 who dies in a car wreck? Let me ask the question. How many of those people had opportunity to obey the gospel, to believe, repent, confess, and be baptized prior to those events that took them out of the world? If God makes an exception for those individuals, that's his prerogative. We still have to appear to the commands of the New Testament. A baptism is a mark of the covenant. Circumcision is a parallel of the old covenant. The law of circumcision was instituted with Abraham. Genesis seventeen, thirteen, and 14. He that is born in thy house and he that is bought with thy money must needs be circumcised. And my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. And the uncircumcised man child whose flesh of his foreskin is not circumcised, that soul shall be cut off from his people he hath broken my covenant. Now that statement came from God, but the same concept was ordained and commanded by Moses in Leviticus 12 and verse 3. The uncircumcised could not enter the promised land, according to Joshua 5. The uncircumcised could not partake of the Passover meal, Exodus the 12th chapter. You say, what does that have to do with baptism? Circumcision foreshadowed baptism. Circumcision is an anti-type of baptism. You say, how can you prove that? Colossians 2 Colossians 2, verses 10 through 11, And ye are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power, in whom also ye are circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, in putting off the body of sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Now, when did that happen? According to Colossians 2, we are complete in him. We've been circumcised with a circumcision not made with hands, and we've put off the body of sins by that circumcision of Christ. When did that happen? Look at verse 12. We are buried with him in baptism, wherein also you are risen with him through faith of the operation of God who hath raised him from the dead. Baptism is a mark of the new covenant. And it is a point of entrance into the new covenant. There has to be a line to cross. If you drive from... Florida to Georgia, there's a line that you're going to cross somewhere close to Valdosta that will put you into Georgia and you will leave Florida. If you're a young 62 years old, like someone I know, there's a date that you become 63, and that date can stay out there a ways, if you ask me. For an unborn child, there's a moment that he or she is actually born, and the same thing's true of the new birth. John 3 and verse 5, Jesus answered verily, verily, I say unto you, except a man be born of water and of the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now notice the absolutes, except, cannot enter. There has to be a line, there has to be a line of demarcation, there has to be a point. Faith only people say it's at the point of faith, though they still require a sinner's prayer. Some denominations actually say it's at faith and repentance. Well, they're closer than the faith only people, but they're still not there. The New Testament says that point is baptism after faith, after repentance and after confession. If I were to put this on a chalkboard and ask you which one you believe, you'd have to walk over and check one of the boxes. Let me ask you what you would check. 1 Peter 3 and verse 21 says the like figure wherein two even baptism doth also now save us. Here's your check boxes. Baptism doth also now save us. Baptism doth also not save us. It really is that simple. If you don't slice it, dice it, and julienne it like most doctrines and commandments of men and most denominations do. Jesus said in Mark 16 and verse 16, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. Forgiveness takes place in the mind of God. And I'm convinced it takes place in the mind of God when we believe that Jesus is the Son of God. When we turn from our sins and when we confess Christ before men and are baptized for the remission of our sins. It is at that point that forgiveness takes place. Forgiveness takes place in the mind of God, not in the mind of men. We don't say when forgiveness takes place. At some point, God forgives and that takes place within his mind. At some point, God says that person has done what I require to forgive them for past sins and forgiveness takes place in the mind of God. I'm convinced that's at the point of baptism. Saul of Tarsus was persecuting the church. He believed that Jesus was a false messiah. He believed those that were spreading this good news about Jesus, it wasn't good news at all. It was a false doctrine. It was a false Christ and he was going to put an end to it. In Acts 9, chapter, and verses 3 through 6, the Bible says, When he was on his way to Damascus to put Christians in jail, as he journeyed, he came near to Damascus, and suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven, and he fell to the earth, and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. And he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And the Lord said unto him, Arise and go into the city, and it shall be told thee what thou must do. Now Paul was blinded by the light. The men that were with him led him into the city. Is there anyone here watching this video that would say that Paul did not believe in Jesus at that point? I am convinced everyone say, yeah, he absolutely believed in Jesus at that point. There's no doubt that Paul repented. Acts 9 and verse 9 says he was three days without sight and neither did eat nor drink. If you actually read that whole story in Acts 9, he prayed for three days, didn't eat or drink. Let me tell you something, you go four days without drinking, you're going to die. But Paul was broken. He had been persecuting the Messiah he thought was a false Messiah, was actually the real Messiah, and he had made a tragic mistake, had put Christians in prison and had some of them killed. Ananias was sent by God, and he came in and said to Paul, according to the account of this event in Acts 22 and verse 16, he said, Why tarryest thou? Arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Baptism is a line of demarcation where God chooses to forgive a penitent sinner of their sins. That's the bottom line. If Paul was saved at the point of faith, Paul didn't know it. Ananias didn't know it, and the Holy Spirit who sent Ananias didn't know it. Paul was still in his sins. He was told by a man sent from God to tell this man what he must do, and he told him to arise and be baptized and wash away his sins. Why didn't he tell him to believe? He already believed. Why didn't he tell him to repent like on the day of Pentecost? He had already repented. And he actually, even on the road, called Christ Lord, Kyrios, what would you have me do? Go into the city and it shall be told you what you must do. And I'm pretty sure that when Ananias baptized him, he confessed his faith in Christ at that baptism. Baptism is a line of demarcation where God chooses to forgive a penitent sinner of their sin. Now, finally, we need to ask some other questions. Who should be baptized? Well, I'm convinced believers should be baptized. Jesus said in Mark 16:16, 16, 16, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. The Ethiopian eunuch in Acts 8, in verses 35 through 38, Philip opened his mouth and began at the same scripture and preached unto him Jesus. As they went on their way, they came to certain water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What doth hinder me from being baptized? And Philip said, If thou believest, with all thine heart thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he commanded the chariot to stand still. And they went down both into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. That excludes infants. There is not a single example of infant baptism within the pages of the New Testament. Some people will run to the Philippian jailer and say he and his whole family were baptized. There were probably infants in that family. Acts 16 and verse 34 says, When they brought them into the house, he set meat before them and rejoiced, believing in God with all his house. That means everyone in the house was capable of belief. Some people say, well, Cornelius probably had infants in his family. There are at least three indicators in that text indicating the capacity for fear and faith with the family of Cornelius. Infants cannot believe. Infants cannot repent. Infants cannot confess. They have no sin. Don't tell me for a moment that God is going to send an infant to hell. I don't believe it. When should a person be baptized? We've talked about who. Now we need to ask the question when. I believe that when they reach an age of accountability, you say, when's that? Well, for different people, it's probably different. Jesus demonstrated accountability at 12 when he was left behind and his parents searched for him for three days. He was probably there five days by himself. They had gone a day's journey before they realized he wasn't with them. I'm assuming it took them a day to get back, and then they searched for three days. He was probably in the temple for five days, and when they found them, they said, you've worried us to death. Why did you do this to us? We've been looking all over for you, and he said, why were you looking all over for me? Did you not know I would be in my father's house about my father's business? Now, some children may get there before 12 years old, and some may never get there. There are some who have mental issues that will never make it to an age of accountability. But at some point in your young life, you become accountable to God for your wrongdoing. I personally believe that a child needs to understand the fact that Jesus must be Lord of their lives, and not just that Jesus will wash away their sins. When you reach that age of accountability, you need to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Repent of your sins, confess him before men, and arise and be baptized and wash away your sins. So that brings us to the next question, how? Well, the New Testament is clear that baptism is an immersion. The Greek word baptizo means to dip, to plunge, to immerse. And the New Testament pictures this. Romans 6 and verse 4 says, Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death. That, like as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Colossians two and verse twelve says, "Buried with him in baptism, wherein also you are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God who hath raised him from the dead." Let me tell you something: you can't bury a man or a woman by sprinkling or pouring dirt on their head. You got to lay them down and you got to put dirt all over them. Well, the same thing's true when it comes to our burial and baptism. We are buried with him in baptism. That means we are completely immersed in water. Why is baptism important? Because baptism is for the remission of sins. In Acts, the second chapter, Peter had just preached the first gospel sermon in the name of a risen redeemer. The individuals that heard the sermon, probably thousands, but 3,000 of them were pricked in their heart. They actually interrupted his sermon in verse 37 and said, men and brethren, what shall we do? Verse 36, what brought them to that point was he said, therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly God had made that same Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. They were pricked in their heart and they cried out, men and brethren, what shall we do? They realized what they had done. They had crucified their long awaited Messiah. They in doing so, had fulfilled scripture, but they were broken because they had done it. And they cried out, what shall we do? They're asking the same question the Philippian jailer did. Peter didn't tell them to believe. It was obvious they already believed. The Philippian jailer didn't know anything about Jesus. but These individuals did. They had probably heard him preach. They had seen some of the works that he had done, some of the miracles he had accomplished. And they still may have been part of that crowd that cried out, crucify him, crucify him. But Peter said unto them when they asked, what shall we do? He said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. I want you to notice something. He didn't tell those individuals to pray a prayer. He didn't tell them to invite Jesus into their heart as their personal Lord and Savior. That's all new. That's not been around since the first century. In the first century, Peter told those believers what they needed to do when they asked, what shall we do? He said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Baptism is for the remission of sins. Now, somebody might say, well, it just simply means because of the remission of sins. Well, I guess they're repenting because of the remission of sins. It's a double-edged sword. It works both ways. They can't repent Because they've been forgiven, that means repentance isn't necessary. But Jesus said, except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. He made it necessary to salvation. Baptism also washes away sins. Acts 22 and verse 16. Why, tarriest thou, rise and be baptized and wash away thy sins. Paul was still in his sins. Though he believed in Jesus on the road to Damascus, though he had prayed and fasted for three days, neither eating nor drinking, And even though he had called Christ Lord on that road to Damascus, he was still told to arise and be baptized and wash away his sin. Baptism actually ensures our glorious resurrection. Romans 6 verses three through five says, know you not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death. Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, Even so, we also should walk in newness of life. Watch this. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. That passage says if. What's he talking about? Being baptized into his death. Raised to walk in newness of life. And he says if we've been planted together in the likeness of his death. What? Baptized. Then we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. That's an if-then statement. If this is true, then this is true. If this isn't true, then this is not true. If we haven't been planted together in the likeness of his death, we will not be in the likeness of his resurrection. Our resurrection will be part of the resurrection of the damned. In baptism, we are sanctified. We are cleansed. In Ephesians 5:25 through 27, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that it should be holy and without blemish. How does that happen? He sanctifies and cleanses it with the washing of water by the word. There's not a scholar out there that won't say that's not baptism. Baptism puts us into Christ. Over 150 times within the pages of the New Testament, the term in Christ or in him appears Many of those times it points to salvation. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Philippians 3 verse 8 and verse 9 Paul said yea doubtless I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ and be found in him not having my own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. Ephesians 1 and verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ. Romans 3 and verse 24, Being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus Romans 8 and verse 1 therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus Romans 8 verse 38 and verse 39 for I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. All things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. We are baptized into Christ. I don't know if you know this, but there's only two passages within the entire New Testament that tell us how to get into Christ. Now, some people may say, you believe into Christ. There's not a single committee translation out there that translates, believe into Christ. Not a one. I have a Hyundai Sonata in the parking lot. I believe in the car. It's a good car. But I can't believe into it. If I want to get into it, I've got to take steps to get into it. The Bible says that we are baptized into Christ. And there's only two passages that say it within the pages of the New Testament. The first one's in Romans 6 and verse 3. Know you not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death. Galatians 3, verse 26 and verse 27 says, For you are all children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. Why? He then says, For, that's the Greek word gar, it means to introduce the reason. Why are we children of God by faith in Christ Jesus? For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. You see, I'm convinced that baptism puts us into Christ. That's where all spiritual blessings are. That's where there's no condemnation. That's where the redemption is. That's where we are hidden with him, not having our own righteousness, which is of the law, but the righteousness which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God and is by faith. That's where we get to those things. How do we get to them? We've got to be in Christ. How do we get into Christ? We're baptized into Christ. Romans 6 and verse 3. Galatians 3, and 27. Now, when you become a child of God, I am convinced it is at the point of baptism. You exercise your right to become a child of God when you obey the gospel, when you repent, confess, and are baptized into Christ. John 1 in verses 10 through 12 says, He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came unto his own, but his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he power To become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. Now that passage makes it clear that if you believe in Christ, he has given you then the power to become a child of God. The implication of that verse is that faith only doesn't get you there. If you believe, you have the right to become. That means you've got to do something. What's that something? God commanded it. God ordained it. God instituted it. You need to repent. You need to confess. And you need to be baptized into Christ for the remission of your sins. Mark 16 and verse 16, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. The word and there in that passage is a coordinating conjunction. It joins two words or phrases of equal rank. Now, someone might argue Mark 16 goes on to say, he that believeth not shall be damned. It does not say, he that believeth not and is not baptized shall be damned. It doesn't have to. It doesn't have to. I'll put it like this. He that eats and digesteth his food shall live, but he that eats not shall die. If you don't eat, there's no food to digest. And the same thing's true. If you don't believe, there's not gonna be a baptism. Faith-only advocates say that he that believeth and is not baptized shall be saved. Now that's the bottom line. That's exactly what they say. He that believeth and is not baptized shall be saved. What's interesting is some of them say, you don't need to be baptized to be saved, but you do need to be baptized to get into the church. Well, if that's the case, I'll remind you that according to the book of Acts chapter two, I believe it's verse 47, says that the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. So we come down to the question that was asked. What must I do to be saved? The answer's right. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. If you really believe and you realize you're lost, there is nothing in this world that's going to stop you from turning from your sins, confessing Christ before men, and being baptized into Christ for the remission of your sins. And it is at that point that you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. On the day of Pentecost, when Peter said, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, they believed. They believed. How come they didn't have the Holy Spirit yet? Why didn't they? Why didn't they have remission of sins yet? Because they haven't done what God told them to do. I'll remind you that God chose water in the past. He chose water to bring Noah from a world of sin to a world that had been purged of sin. He chose water to bring the nation of Israel from their slavery and captivity to a land flowing with milk and honey to the promised land, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 10, as they passed through the Red Sea, they were all baptized unto Moses. He chose water to bring Naaman from the flesh of a leper to the flesh of a newborn child. And in the New Testament, he chose water to bring a man from darkness, a man who was born blind, to sight. When he said to that man, go and wash, the man came back and said, I washed and now I can see. God chose water in all of those circumstances to bring people from a a terrible state to a a wonderful state. Why is it that people today don't believe that he can do the same when it comes to the plan of salvation and baptism? You want to know truth? I just gave you a big dose of it. Thanks for being here. We appreciate your time. Make sure you hit the subscribe button, the like button, and the little bell. We sure appreciate you being here. God bless you this coming week. Be safe.